Welcome back, Cough and Bod listeners. We're here for podcast 25, and I have a special guest, um, someone who shouted me at dinner last week, which, which was fantastic. But I have Eric Hall here, who's a senior manager and advisor solutions at Morningstar. Um, but I want to introduce her from a bit of a different side, not so much the advisor solution, but more on behavioral finance. So, um, you know, there's a nine member team at Morningstar who produce bespoke research on behavioral um, finance. And Eric has been a big advocate of this and has done a lot of research. I think if you could see her notes, uh, you know that she's well prepared. But Erica, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. I'm super passionate about behavioural finance and it's wonderful to be at Morningstar because we do have um, a dedicated team that is building out bespoke research to help people make better decisions yeah. um, when they're looking at their investments. And I really came across this topic about... Well, it's almost 15 years ago, maybe longer, when I was working for another company and they had their behavioural finance expert come out and um, present to us. And it really captured my attention because I hadn't really thought about the way that we make decisions and why we make the decisions that we do. Yep. And he gave this fantastic story about um, the paradox of choice. And it was um, relating to some research done by um, two people, Iyenga and Lepa, and it re- related to jam. And um, you sort of go, well, how does jam relate to investment <laughs> decisions? But it absolutely does. And it was really to really highlight how difficult it is for us to make complex decisions in when we're making a choice about jam, let alone making a choice about investment. And so the story or the research was pretty much went like this. Iyengar and Lepo, they set up a, a trestle table with jams at a supermarket one Saturday. And on the first Saturday, they had six jams on the table. And um, the idea was that people would come past, sample the jam, and then hopefully buy the jam. Now, what they found is that um, people did stop by and, and buy the jam, but um, then they said, well, wonder if we actually have a larger selection and so we went they went from six jams to 26 jams the following Saturday to see if there's any difference in activity and outcomes and what they found is that there was a lot more foot traffic um, with the larger jam table obviously it looked really pretty there's all this array of jams to choose from people were tasting but actually they didn't buy more what they found is that people actually made decisions and bought more from the smaller selection table and so really what that sort of demonstrates is that you can actually get choice overload. And if you yep. have too much to choose from, you can go into a choice paralysis and not make a decision at all. And I think that that's super interesting when you're talking about investments as well because there is a myriad of choices available to us. And so then, you know, what, how do we actually determine which is the best one for us? And so what you might find is if you give people too many options, they're just going to put their head in the sand and they're not going to make a decision at all. Yeah, I think when we have our clients come in, that's, that's one of the big things they actually just want to be simplified. Yep. Um, they want advice and they want to make it simplified. And we'll touch on some of those stories. But I guess, was this the point that you become interested in you know, behavioural finance? And, and that's where the studies sort of go on from there? Absolutely, because it got me thinking and I thought, well, this is actually me. I find it really hard to make a decision. And so I do procrastinate. And so this jam story <laughs> really resonated. And then we, they sort of the conversation then went on to then opt in and opt out. And, um, you know, particularly for the US pension system it isn't um, the same as our compulsory superannuation system and so how do you sort of encourage people to save for retirement and that really was the start of me going wow 
how we make decisions and how we are influenced by, um, I guess, how things are framed really can impact on our outcomes. So that was the, the genesis of me being really passionate yeah. about all right. things behavioural finance. So when, when we talk about the study of it, what are some of the key areas of study in behavioural science that we should be aware about? Sure. So look, I think first up, there's the economic theory that expects that we're all really rational beings and that we're going to make great rational decisions to maximise utility is the terminology to get them I guess to get the most out of our um, circumstances or to be as happy as possible maybe to generate the most money if yep. you sort of think about it so we're going to make decisions to get the, the right outcome and that all sounds good in theory it sounds reasonable but actually in reality that is not what happens at all no. and so um, the behavioral um, economists have done a lot of work on this and a, a lot of it's quite um, old now so Kahneman and Tversky prospect theory that was discovered in 1979, and in fact, um, what that demonstrated is that people can show both risk-seeking and risk-adverse behaviours for an equivalent circumstance, depending on whether it's framed as a gain or a loss. And so what they uncovered is that people really don't like uncertainty, and they really don't like losses. And in fact, we feel the pain of a loss twice as much as we feel the pleasure of a gain. You just mentioned then is, is sort of a story that we tell our, um, it's it sort of come from you guys and it's relayed to our clients that yeah, they, they do feel those losses and they become very anxious when they you know, find those losses and you know, they're on the phone straight away saying what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so, but they're not ringing us when those gains are coming, but you know, that's why we tried to have those portfolios set that certain way. Yep. Well, so of course, the traditional economic theory would say that the way it's framed wouldn't have any impact at all on the decision. But obviously, the behavioural um, economists have shown that how it's framed absolutely matters and does have a complete, you know, or strongly influences your, your decision making process. So I think that that's super, super interesting because then, um, you know, this whole framing and how it influences your decision making in everyday life as well. So there was an example with surgery. And so when surgeons talked about the 90% success rate of the surgery, people would take up the surgery, more people would take up the surgery. When they talked about the 10% mortality rate, less people would take up the surgery. Now clearly they're equivalent situations. One's framed positively, one's framed negatively. Yeah. Same with milk. You know, Would you like the 90% full fat milk or the 4% fat free? Again, equivalent yeah. situations, but actually the four percent fat free sounds better to me. You know, I don't want to you know take on the ninety cent percent, ninety six percent fat, full fat milk. And then the final one that I thought was really interesting is in a UK supermarket, they were piping music through and they're playing German music. You know, um, one day, and what they found is that people would buy more German wine when they were playing German music, and then the next day they'd play French music, and they found that people would buy more French wine. So there's all these things that are happening that affect our decision making process. So here we are thinking we're autonomous people yeah. making our own decisions, but we are being influenced. Well, can, yeah, can the media, so I guess if, if the media is being negative on us and we're seeing bad things happening, can that impact on consumer investing? Absolutely, because um, if you think about the media, what they're wanting to do is sell um, newspapers, I suppose. Yep. And so, um, you know, I guess bad news sells, people are sort of interested and people do get concerned and so there is a lot of noise out there so you want to be really careful about what you're focusing on. Yep. And so um, you know, there was a study done where people have sort of what they call myopic loss aversion and they um, they found that this this was a high net worth group of people, I just can't remember which, um, which accounting group did the study now, 
But what they found is that 50% of the people were looking at their portfolios on a daily basis and then were feeling really anxious about it and were likely to then um, make a trade that they regretted. Yep. And sometimes, you know, and this then sort of feeds into, I suppose, some of our biases. Sometimes um, we feel compelled to, say, act. So that there's a bias called the action bias um, when we hear some some news and so it's like okay oh everything's you know doom and gloom I better do something and then that way I feel like I've got control yeah when sometimes it's better to do nothing at all you know if you've got a long-term strategic plan does it really matter what's you know an intraday movement does that really impact you if you've got a plan for 20 years out stick to the plan focus on the you know the long-term goal and objective rather than the short-term noise and so what this is i think really important because what happens is if people are being myopic and looking at things on the short term um many investors don't even achieve a market return because they are trading in and out because they are reacting to you know negative news or their, their own emotional sort of concerns their own loss aversion their yeah. own you know human fallacies and so, yeah, studies have shown that you know, if the market, just the, you know, the, the general market return, let's pull a number out, just say it's 10%, people will be getting less than that because they're, they're trading all the time and obviously it costs to trade and they're, and they're buying and selling at the wrong time. And so this whole expectation that if you, you need to act can be a, a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think we, we see that definitely with clients sometimes that, you know, there's there's ones that set and forget and, yep. you know, we've gone over that strategy that, hey, we're looking at this for seven plus years, this investment, you know, you, you're 20 years off retirement. So, you know, let, let's have a long-term plan in, but they start to look at it every day and, and they do become a lot more stressed and there's a lot more phone calls than the ones that seem to set and forget. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when, when we're having those reviews with clients and we're touching base and we're sort of talking about their portfolio, I think the ones that understand the long-term strategy are pleasantly surprised when they hear, oh, okay, it is doing well in yes. that sense. So um, there's another one by um, Steve Wendell who talks about recency bias. Um, yes. And I thought it was an interesting quote he has here. Recency bias is interesting. If you see a car crash in front of you, um, you would swerve. But if you see the stock uh, market in front of you crash, you would jump in and buy the stock. So that's, I guess, with our clients sometimes, you know, when, they, when they're seeing it sort of coming down, we're well placed with cash, as you know, um, to sort of take those opportunities. Yes. And I think it needs to be relayed to the client as well. Yeah, and I think that this is a really good point. It's about those um, behavioural biases that we have and why do we have them and do they serve us well in investing versus everyday life, right? Yeah. And why we have them? Well, we, we have to make a lot of decisions on a daily basis. And in fact, I was reading a study saying that you know, compared to some 20 years ago, we've got five times more information that we've got to process and make decisions on. Five times more. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of decisions. And so, you know, you see people like Barack Obama was always wearing his blue suit or, and, you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg's got his black T-shirt and um, even Steve Jobs would wear his black turtleneck because it's like it was one less decision that I need to make because I've got too many other decisions to make. And so, um, you know, in everyday life, you're right, you touch you know, something hot and it's like, oh, it burns. You know, so therefore, it's it's good to have that shortcut because you've, you're using your past experience yeah. to make decisions. But in investing, sometimes, yeah, actually those shortcuts don't serve us well. And so, you know, you do need to sort of be aware of um, the decisions that you're making and is this the right decision to make? Are you reacting in the right way? And so that recency bias is when you put too much weight on what's just most recently occurred and you expect that trend to continue. Now, that might not be the case. We might have been coming off, depending on where we're at the market cycle, maybe it's been a massive bull run and it's about to turn. And so, But you're going, well, we've had this bull run, the market keeps going up. It's going to keep going up forever. 
everyone's, everyone's making money. Yeah. Have I yeah. not put enough in? Should I be making more money? That sort of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, you're basically putting so much weight on recent experiences and you're not really potentially looking at, you know, what's actually, you know, what could happen um, in the future. And then I think then we're touching on another bias, which is this hurting bias that you're talking about. Everyone's going in, so, you know, should I be too? And I think that that's another bias to be aware of. And again, in everyday life, it serves us well. And I know Steve Wendell talks about the um, example of a fire. You know, you're sitting in the office, the fire alarm um, doesn't go off, but somebody yells fire. You can't smell smoke, you can't see flames, but... Um, the alarm's not going off, but people are running to the door. What are you going to do? You're going to start running. You're going to start yeah. running too. And that's a smart thing to do. It's, yeah. you know, it's what you should do. But if you do the same in markets, that might not be the smart thing to do at all. And so you know, one of the examples that um, we talk about there is the dot-com boom, right? Yep. And I think um, I've, I've mentioned this to you guys before, but in 1996, Sausage had an IPO. It was our um, own Australian dot-com darling. And um, and it was sort of just as the uh, dot-com boom was taking off, and I think at that point in time, Alan Greenspan had mentioned this whole irrational exuberance. People were ignoring the fundamentals of markets and just going, this time it's different, it's technology, and, you know, the whole fundamentals don't matter. And, you know, there's this meteoric rise and rush to invest into um, tech stocks. And I love this because I think it's almost like a um, fear of missing out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also like classic loss aversion. It's like, well, everybody else is doing it and it's all going, you know, swimmingly. I better get on board too because I don't want to miss out on this fantastic opportunity to make some easy money. And um, so even though Alan Greenspan's going, this makes no sense, irrational exuberance, um, you know, four years later, it, it had kept going up and up and up um, until the music did stop and it all came to a, sort of a crashing end. And so at the height of the dot-com boom, sausage shares got up to $40 a share. And then obviously we had the dot-com bubble burst. And then a year later, those shares were worth $1.80. Now, Sausage was a great company. It wasn't yeah. a bad company. It was just that all the fundamentals had been ignored and people had just you know, gone beyond what was reasonable and going, oh, you know, the fundamentals don't matter now because this is you know, new technology. And, and they did. Yeah. Eventually it caught up with them. <laughs> so that whole um, you know, hurting bias is when you sort of forget about your own judgment and you don't want to miss out and you just mimic others around you and it can be very dangerous in investing. Great in everyday life. Yeah, great in everyday life. Are there any other biases that we should touch on when it comes to behaviors? Oh, I think there's um, quite a few, really. The other um, thing is overconfidence, right? So we can sort of have a high opinion of our skills and capabilities. And again, if I use that same dot-com you know, example, you'd be going, I'm making so much money. I've doubled, tripled, quadrupled my money. I'm a legend. I picked this. I'm so clever. Um, when really it wasn't you at all. <laughs> it just happened to be a bit of luck. Um, and so that can actually you know, hold you... Um, it, it can actually be... you. Know, to your detriment to have such confidence in your own ability yep. and it's like I think the example is you know people think that they're a really good driver now obviously not everyone can be a great driver and an above average driver but you ask people and they go, oh yeah I'm a, I'm a fantastic driver I've just had a car accident on the weekend so I'm thinking maybe I'm not this is not feeling so well, good no, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. yeah yeah oh, it's such a little bingle but you know that's that whole but if you ask me I'm like I'm an amazing oh, driver so you know maybe I'm a bit overconfident there um, the other one I think that's really interesting or important is the whole anchoring and how we anchor around um, you know uh, a certain number 
And there's been some great studies there. So uh, what they um, did at MIT is they actually uh, did an auction for a bunch of random goods. And before actually bidding for the um, goods, they asked the students to pull out their social security cards and write down the last two numbers of the social security cards, right? So the students knew this is completely random. This had no bearing on the price of the, the goods. But what they found is it did actually impact their ability to bid on the items. And those with a higher um, last two digits of the social security number were prepared to pay more, and it's significantly more, so like two or 300% more. So it did kind of anchor, they did anchor around that high number, and they knew it was a completely random you know, number. And these were MIT students, so you know, I would say pretty smart pretty people. Smart there, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the biasy there was that that um, you know they were just anchoring at a too high a level, and so you know, anchoring bias is when you rely on an initial piece of information, um, and even if you know it's to be completely irrelevant, you then make your decision based off that. Um, I just think that that's so no, interesting. I find that very bizarre. Yeah. Um, especially when it's a number, random number. Yeah, but, you know, if you think about it, there's, and that's, that's how I guess things are, you know, we're kind of subtly being anchored all the time. You go and you want to go and buy something. And they go, oh, you know, the normal price is at, you know, $500, but we've got a 50% off sale, so now it's 250 Maybe they're always quite happy to sell for 250 but they've anchored you at that high level, so you feel like you're getting a really good deal. Yeah. So <laughs> we are being manipulated probably you know, more often than we realize again we think we're these autonomous beings making decisions but we but actually consumers we're not <laughs> we're, we're being influenced all the time yeah. um and another way you can anchor is you know the jelly bean in the jar and you could say something like okay how many over or under um 200 are in the jar and that way you've got your anchor at 200 so then you'll find that the decisions and the, the guesses that people will make will be around that 200 mark yeah even if there's 500 in there. correct so it's it's super fascinating um when you sort of start getting into this and how people make decisions so as investors um and i guess in our line of work how do we overcome these biases when we are investing i think part of it is to be aware number one yep. that you know there's uh, you know, there's all these biases that occur and in everyday life they serve us well but we are human we are we're made up of both rational and, and emotions yeah. and so you know are we behaving ir irrationally or are we behaving rationally at this point in time I think then um, you know the more you sort of research it study it educate yourself you know talk to your advisor and understand how you're making decisions can help you then um, overcome some of these biases and so I think one of the things we know complex decision making we don't do well as humans and that's you know even simple as making a choice on jam really hard yeah. <laughs> um, so then how do you so how do you help there it's it's really focused on the optimal solution and maybe that's working with your advisor for your advisor to sort of help you sort of determine what that optimal solution is um, another way is that we know that we, we lack a bit of self-control um, and so it's like well how do you manage that and it's like pre-committed pre-commitment devices and so um, for example I've got my bucket list of things I want to do it's up here in my head I want to write it down and then that way it makes it real and it's like and then I want to commit to actually ticking off those um, items on my bucket list for example 
Um, there's a great example of Ulysses on the mast. Um, he wanted to hear the siren song of the sirens, and the sirens would sing their songs and uh, lure sailors to the rocks so that they would crash against the rocks, right? This is going back. <laughs> um, this is you know, obviously a, a myth. And so, so what did he do? He really wanted to hear the song, but he didn't want to crash into the rocks. So he got his sailors to tie his hands to the mast. So he made a commitment like, I want to hear the songs, but I do not want to go off course. So tie my hands to the mast so I can't actually do, know, anything. do anything. And then he had his sailors fill their ears with wax so they couldn't hear the song at all. So they wouldn't be also tempted to sort of go and crash themselves against the rocks. And I think that that's really important from an investment perspective as well. Have the plan, be committed, stick to it. And Don't listen your, to the noise. Yeah, and that's your pre-commitment, right? And keep coming back to that. Yeah, yeah, okay, what is it I'm trying to achieve? Does it really matter what's happening, you know, on this very day? Um, you know, it, I'm here for the long term. It's okay. And in fact, I was even thinking about this pre-commitment device, thinking, really, that's what happens when you get married, right? <laughs> you basically say, plan. You know, yeah, I'm basically, you know, I'm forsaking all others. I'm here, I'm committed, sickness and health. It's the same thing. Yep. So when, when talking about, I want to touch on, I guess, some client, we'll sort of bring that back to clients, that long-term strategy. Um, it's funny, it, so Sarah Newcomb, who you've actually spoke very highly about previously, yes. so she's done a lot of study on this. Yes. Um, but she said, um, so whoever vested interest, clients on target, sorry, clients who might not be able to see the difference between goals they want, goals they need, and goals they can actually achieve. Yes. So I find that interesting when we're sort of talking about long term um, and goal setting for a client and sticking to that goal. Sometimes clients don't know what that long term goal is. Yes. I think it, it, it's asked sometimes. You know, what what income do you see yourself in retirement? I got no idea. Yes. You know, I've never thought about that. I've never thought into the future. So sometimes getting a plan for the future and sticking to it is hard for some people. Yes. So how do we get around that? And I think that's a really good question. And she talks about Sarah Newcomb talks yeah. about this whole um, psychological distance, right? And so as humans, we actually really care about you know the now. So what's happening to me, sort of now versus what's happening to someone on the other side of the world in 50 years time I, I sort of care less about that and so it's that how do you then bridge that psychological distance to make the future seem more real yeah and she talks about and I think probably as advisors you might already do this is you really want to help clients visualize what that future could look like so then it becomes more real so then they become more committed to the plan so then they're happy to forego maybe a dollar today and invest it for their future yeah we've and had we've had we've had examples where sometimes they aren't but we, we, we sort of I guess painted that picture where we've had um, there's a couple that was sort of close to retirement yeah uh, they're sort of becoming towards that time of their life and and their savings goal was definitely not where it wanted to be or needed to be um, and there was some solutions put in front of them to say okay this is where you can be if these sacrifices are made Correct. and they were definitely you know we're talking you know cut back on cigarettes and things like that things mm -hmm. that we don't need um but th they did actually stick to that goal and you can already see the difference that's made it's actually made a greater difference than it was initially planned and so it's you know sticking to that goal now and looking ahead and it's changed so it is interesting yeah that some so Sarah even states that the further that someone thinks ahead and the clearer the picture the future is, the better decisions they make financially. Absolutely, yeah. So she's basically um, distilled it down to, you know, mental time is money. Yep. So, that, you know, the, and basically she was able to put some statistics around it from a US perspective. And I think it was for every year someone was thinking out past today, 
equated to twenty thousand dollars. Wow! So um, obviously that's a US example. So yeah. people were saving twenty thousand more, and that was a, you know even when you took into account um, income and age and gender and education, um, it, it didn't matter. It literally. If you were thinking for the future and you were um, able to sort of, you know, and the longer you thought out, the more money you could save and the better off you'd be. So really powerful, right? Because a lot of those other things you can't change, you know, you are, although <laughs> I did say this to someone once and they said, well, well, maybe you can. So I'm saying you can't change your gender. I'm like, well, maybe you can. Yeah, okay, maybe. all right, fair enough. You can't change your age. Yes, you can't change your age. <laughs> There's a man that tried to change his age, so he could get down with Tinder, but he was unsuccessful in that. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that you can't change, but you can definitely change your mental mindset, right? And so yeah. that's really powerful. So, you know, you can, you have a fair bit of control. And I think that's the second part of it is that she determined is that the more in control you feel, the happier you are. And so, you know, her whole premise of her, the research she's undertaken is, um, you know, as an industry, you know, the finance industry, it's all about more is better. Yeah. And, but that's not necessarily always the case because some clients will come to you and they're actually quite financially secure, but they don't necessarily feel it and they don't necessarily sleep all at night and they worry. Yep. And so her whole point is, well, actually, you know, financial, you know, health is one thing, but also it's the um, emotional health is really important as well. And the two have to work together. So you can have someone that's really financially robust, but not emotionally healthy and um so her whole point is well then how do we determine you know who's sitting across the table from us and if you've got someone that's not emotionally um healthy then what you'll determine or discover is that they actually feel like they don't have any control they feel helpless and so if that's who you've got across the table from them from you you can then show them how they actually have quite a lot of control. Yeah, okay, you, potentially you can't control markets, I get that. Yep. But you can control how you react. You know, you can control you know, what your plan looks like. You can control how much you save. You can control how much you spend. You, know, you can control your asset allocation. You do have a lot of things you can control. Um, and, and that... Put those that, right frameworks. Yeah, in. that framework can really help people feel a lot more um, secure and then emotionally healthy. And she's her whole premise is you're not really financially healthy until you've both got the financial stability and the emotional stability. And I, I think a hard a hard time in people's life is when when we see people that come in that have recently been divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might see examples where a, a client comes in and they've, they've got a large lump sum of money due to the divorce. Yep. They've never dealt with finance in their life. Um, and I think that's a very interesting time when we talk about, you know, psychological side that they have no idea where to turn. Yes. Um, and, and it's about creating that clear picture for them because, yeah, as I said, they've had a card, they've been able to tap that card and they've been able yes. to spend money. Um, but now, and, and it is, they are financially secure. Yes. But to them, they can't see the security because all of a sudden, you know, that lifeline's gone. Yes. So that's, that's a very interesting time when it comes to that and, and trying to manage that. Yeah, and I think that then... You know, that's where having great quality advice can really make such a difference, right? You can sort of um, give them that structure, do the, you know, undertake a plan and a strategy, and help them feel quite secure in that the future is going to be okay. Yeah. It's all okay. It's all okay. <laughs> um, so- Sorry, go on. No, no. So I, I was going to say, um, I was going to talk about this and the way that we use this in creating our portfolios um, mm-hmm. and the way that we, I guess, use Morningstar. So 
Um, if for people that don't know, you sit on our advisory board, uh, sorry, our investment committee, um, and we do that monthly. And so it's important for us to, I guess, when we're looking at overcoming these biases, we might have them internally. And so it's important to have external people and, and people with differing opinions coming in. Um, and we can butt heads on things, which is fantastic, but at the end of the day, that's giving us a better outcome because we've structured it different ways. So, you know, from Morningstar's point of view, how, how are they sort of setting up their portfolios at the moment? Okay, so at the moment um, we're quite concerned about um, how expensive markets are, yep. and the fundamentals are, are pointing to that it's you know it's hard to find value, um, but it's not impossible. Yep. So as a result, um, we are underweight Australia, yep. Australian equities, and we're underweight US equities, but we're finding really nice pockets of value in UK. Parts of Europe, uh, Germany's been a new position we've taken on, um, some parts of Asia, so South Korea we like, Japan we like as well. So probably we're not necessarily taking broad market beta, but really picking the eyes out of it and going into the geographic areas that make sense. Yep. And then we're also looking at what sectors make sense in the current um, economic climate. And so there's sort of two main sectors that we've really liked, consumer staples, and also healthcare. So we've been, um, I guess, investing into those particular sectors. And the reason that when we're building portfolios, we like to think about how do clients think about money, right? And so what we're looking at is what clients really care about is the actual real return. So not necessarily you know, your return relative to a benchmark or relative to a peer, but what is the return you actually get in your pocket? Yep. And then secondly, the other thing we think clients will you know, say to, to us and to you, don't lose my money. Yeah. And so we, we definitely take that into account and we're looking at providing the best um, possible return for the lowest possible risk. So the risk component and the downside protection is also really important to us. And, and, that's, and that's very important to us in here. And I think we, when we talked about you know, media and outside noise, we can see certain industry funds and things saying, oh, you know, we've just done this return and we've done this return and we're the best balance fund. But when we look at that balance fund, it's not a balance fund. Yes. You know, they're taking 99% growth assets. You know, the risk to get that return and, you know, the return might be slightly less when we, the makeup of our portfolio, you know, we might have just underperformed this apparently balanced portfolio, but for the risk that we're taking, it's just complete, it's half. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's important as well. It absolutely is, because I think that um, at the moment we're in the lowest re um, interest rate return environment we've been in. And so I understand that therefore people are going, well, how am I going to generate a return? I'm getting you know, next to nothing on cash. And so what we're seeing is people going up the, the risk spectrum and taking on additional risk, yep. but possibly you know, not at a great time. And so yeah, it's always really important to remember the return is generated from the risk taken and are you getting rewarded for that risk and if you're not it's better off to actually you know, perhaps hold a bit of cash which is what we are we're holding quite a lot of cash at the moment so yeah. we're ready to deploy um, when the valuations are better and we're getting a bit better rewarded for the risk that we're taking if we're not getting rewarded for the risk we're taking we'd rather hold the cash yeah fantastic so look I hope our clients um, have loved this. I hope they aren't giving me, you know, do you want to flip the coin and things like that. You sort of, you give answers on a thing without actually thinking deeply about it. Um, and that's interesting when we go through a risk profile with a client. Um, it's about understanding the way that they want to invest and, and their psychological feel there. So, Erica, thank you very much for coming in today. I really appreciate your time um, and I reckon our clients will love this. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.